0: Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas Fort Worth region. Become a member today at DFWworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes and Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it.
1: We are so glad you are here on this very special occasion to be with Scott Berg, uh, who's been to Dallas before on his many other New York Times bestselling book, but this is the one that I think I'm most excited about. Uh, Scott's first biography was of Maxwell Perkins, which won the National Book Awards. And then he wrote one (coughs) on Samuel Goldwyn as an MGM And then he wrote one on Charles Lindbergh that won the Pulitzer Prize. And then he wrote one on Katharine Hepburn that was on the New York Times bestseller list for several months, uh, 10 years ago. But now he's written, he's entered the realm of presidential biographer with Wilson. So first of all, let's welcome Scott Berg. Thank you. Now now Scott, your new book shows the power of books. Because 48 years ago, when you were 15 years old, your mother gave you When the Cheering Stopped. And you read it and you devoured it and you fell in love with Woodrow Wilson. And now, almost a half century later, you spent 13 years on your new book. So tell us, what is it about Woodrow Wilson that has driven your connection with
0: him for almost a half century? Well, I think beginning at 15, it was that, well, I should explain that when I was 15, I had on my wall four portraits uh, after I read When the Cheering Stopped. And they, they were F. Scott Fitzgerald, Adley Stevenson, Woodrow Wilson, and Don Quixote. <laughs> um, and I think you can see the through line. Um, they were all, well, quixotic figures. Uh, and they were all tragic idealists, and I think at 15, I was deeply into tragedy and deeply into idealism. Um, and so Wilson has just, just stuck with me, and I've been, I've been reading about Wilson ever since. I mean, I've read hundreds of books about Wilson since then, and in reading about it all, I kept thinking, no book has captured the personal side of this man. Uh, you know, has really developed his character so that we can see how it played out in his presidency and indeed how it affected the world that we live in to this day. So he has been constantly interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, uh, Wilson became our 28th president in 1913, and your book references many of his characteristics that match up with our president in 2013. A president elected on a meteoric rise, primarily due to his gift for oratory. Mm-hmm. A president who sought to impose serious regulations on private enterprise and to re- seek to <coughs> redistribute wealth. A polarizing president who's been in gridlocked conflict with Congress and has tried to turn Congress around by speaking to the public. And a president whose view of American foreign policy is idealistic but he doesn't have the wherewithal to build the consensus. So is that part of the biographer's job to contemporize your subjects by writing about historical figures from a different time in a way that connects with historical
0: figures of today? Well, first let me ask, so do you think we have gridlock today? <laughs> uh, I mean, wait till you read 1913. <laughs> I mean, that's that's gridlock. Yeah. Now... Um, Yes and no. I don't consciously think about contemporizing. However, um, I do think it's a nice layer to have within the book, and it really did help me a great deal uh, that there are those similarities you just mentioned between President Obama and President Wilson, and there's some very curious parallels. So what I try to do is not draw a big circle around things, but in writing about Wilson I will often use contemporary language so that you'll get the reference. It's it's a little like when I was writing my Lindbergh book, uh, and of course the centerpiece of Lindbergh's life was the famous kidnapping of his child, the crime of the century. And as I was writing the Lindbergh book, the O.J. Simpson trial was going on at the same time, which everyone was saying, this is the trial of the century. So I, I wrote up the Lindbergh trial almost as though I were writing about the O.J. Mm. trial talking about the mountain of evidence that was piling up against him and so forth, and using the same lingo, uh, just so people will realize, well, among other things, things don't change all that much. But the parallels between contemporary society and Wilson's are so, so close. Uh, And also, I think it makes a further point in the case of a president such as Wilson, which is, and this is one of the main themes of of my book and what I'm talking about on the road here now is that the world in which we live today is almost entirely of Woodrow Wilson's making, whether it's our foreign policy, our economic policy, labor policy, just everything that is going on today, for good or for bad, love him or hate him, it is largely of Woodrow Wilson's design. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the parts of your book that I like the best is the fact that you title every
1: chapter with one word that has a biblical connection, Eden, Sinai, Advent, Reformation, Damascus, and then you start every chapter with a scripture. So did you biblicize your book to drive home the point that Wilson, the son and grandson of a Presbyterian minister, was a, quote, Christian soldier? who has also been accused by the likes of Sigmund Freud and Clemenceau of having a Christ complex?
0: (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) 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 Yes would be the answer to that. Um, It occurred to me as I was writing the book, as I was researching the book, actually, I believe, and I I don't know a lot about John Tyler, so I, I I might be wrong in making this statement, but I believe Wilson was the most deeply religious man we've ever had in the White House. Uh, He was deeply spiritual. He uh, was, as you said, the son and grandson of Presbyterian ministers. But indeed, if you shake the family trees of the Woodrow's and the Wilsons, another 12 ministers will Mm. fall from the branches. Mm. Um, So that was a big part of his life. This is a man who got on his knees and prayed twice a day a man who said grace before every meal, went to church every Sunday, read scripture every night, um, and grew up really admiring his father, going to to church not just on Sundays, but during the week when his father would practice um, his sermons and whatnot. And even on on Sundays to be a little boy and sit in the churches in Columbia, South Carolina, or Augusta, Georgia, which are still standing. And they're really small cathedrals. And as I walked into those churches for the first time, and I actually sat in the pew that Woodrow Wilson would sit in as a child, and imagine looking up and hearing his father's booming voice, which was nothing less than the voice of God. (laughs) And so a Christ complex, yeah, well, it made sense. So I wanted to suggest to the reader not just his religiosity, but I think also I'm, I, know, I know certain passages of the Bible Wilson was reading at certain times. Mm. And those began to inform me. And then I said, well, gee, when he first came to, to Washington with very little experience, he really had his, bapti- his baptism here. Mm-hmm. So Baptism became the title chapter there. And, mm-hmm. and at the end, when he was in, in disfavor and then began to bounce back, I thought, well, he, he's like getting resurrected, you know. So Resurrection became a title. And suddenly I thought, oh, I could do 17 of these. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's easy.
1: Yeah. Now, now, your epigraph, which is two stanzas from Wordsworth's poem, Character of the Happy Warrior, yes. I believe concisely states the theme for the 743-page book, but yet, some of Wilson's traits that you develop are quite unflattering, yeah. that he was a good hater, always looking for someone to hate, that he was a, quote, genteel racist who did virtually nothing to advance civil rights, yeah. that on at least three occasions he quickly and totally severed longtime friendships over disagreements, and that he was an enemy of compromise. Quote, God save us from compromise. Now, how do these negative traits line up with the happy warrior?
0: Well, he was a complicated guy. (laughs) Um, and, And Wilson would be the first to tell you that people are not consistent. And Wilson really didn't like labels, political or otherwise. He didn't like personal labels on people. Um, he, again, I think his religiosity kicks in here. I'm not going to say that he felt God spoke to him, but he definitely felt he was on a mission. And he was so directed in whatever that mission was um, over a lifetime or over a specific year, such that if anybody or anything got in the way of that, he either just plowed right through or he cast them aside. And so, in that regard, this man who really did believe God is love, he really did become a very good hater. And if you crossed him, as as his two or three closest friends in the world did, um, he would literally just draw the curtain down. Um, his closest <laughs> professional associate was, uh, well, was a was a Texan, uh, Colonel uh, House, and uh, Colonel House. He used to say, "He's my second personality. He's my my other self." And indeed, Colonel House went to Paris. And and the and Wilson, you, you have to remember that after the war, Wilson went to Paris for six months. Mm-hmm. I mean, the president of the United States left the country for a half a year and was over there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we get upset if somebody, if a president takes two days off in Nantucket, you know, or <laughs> Linard, You know, and here's a guy, not, you know, not that he was at the Follies Berger, but um, he was drawing up this treaty. He did come home for three weeks in that period, um, basically because Congress was was uh, closing. Um, and he had to be there for that. But in that period, he left this man, Colonel House, in charge of things. When he got back, he learned that Colonel House, who had been really in the shadows, suddenly liked the limelight. And Colonel House was suddenly giving press conferences and being photographed. and. And his son-in-law was there and talking about how little Woody doesn't really do much, but my father-in-law is really doing everything. And Wilson then comes back and learns that house has actually been selling the country down the river a little and going back on some of the things Wilson had already negotiated. And from that point on, they still had another couple of months to go. But Wilson really began to lower the curtain By the time Wilson left Paris in June of 1919, all of Paris turned out to say goodbye to to this great savior, you know? And there was Colonel House uh, on uh, on the platform, and Wilson shook his hand, said goodbye, never saw him again, never spoke to him again. The man did not exist. Simple as that. And he could do that with, as I said, three or four others, two or three others. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, I'm sure you were delighted to learn that Leonardo DiCaprio has bought the film rights to your book and plans to play Woodrow Wilson, hoping to duplicate the success of Lincoln, I'm sure. So if if Leonardo DiCaprio was sitting here, what would you tell him is the most important or maybe the two most important characteristics in Wilson's personality that he needs to develop if he's gonna play him straight, recognizing
0: the complexity of his personality. Well the first thing I would say before that even is thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's and that's mostly because, you know, for years a lot of people come up to me and they go, Woodrow Wilson, he's so sexless, you know? And and now I just say, Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> uh, Could be me, could be you, I don't know, but let's see. But I tell you, I think I think Leonardo DiCaprio actually has the two most important qualities as an actor that I think uh, Woodrow Wilson's character demands. Uh, First of all, he's got brains. He sells great intelligence. He can really do that. He's one of the few actors who can read complicated dialogue and make it sound as though he knows what he's saying. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, I think Leonardo DiCaprio sells great heart. He has a great Um, inner core of romance to him, I think, and that, um, most photographs of Wilson aside, is actually who he was. He was a deeply, deeply romantic figure, uh, as evidenced by the thousands of passionate love letters Uh, He wrote to each of his two wives. He had two wives, not at the same time, I should add. Um, (laughs) uh, An interesting movie, but but his first wife did die uh, in the White House, and then he courted and married the second Mrs. Wilson. But, I mean, you read these letters, which are the most romantic love letters I've ever read. And I've read the Brownings, and I've read the Adamses, and... There, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm next, <laughs> next to these letters. And so I think I would say, don't be afraid to be as intelligent as you can, because that was another characteristic of Wilson. He was the most educated president we ever had. He's the, our only PhD president. He never talked down to the American people. He never dumbed down the language. He never simplified the thoughts. And that was one of the secrets to his success, because everybody felt uplifted by Woodrow Wilson. Mm -hmm. And I would also say, don't downplay the heart. Don't downplay the romance. He was a deeply emotional man.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, Lincoln the film dealt with only four months of Lincoln's life. So if you're the director and you decide the Wilson film should be (coughs) devoted to only four months of his life. Which four months would you pick? Well,
0: I am a co-producer. Oh, good. (laughs) And so um, uh, what we've been talking about, and it's still a tad premature because we're now in the process of selecting a screenwriter, actually, and and we're out to a number of people, and we want to hear their reactions to the overall material. And if a writer came in and said, you know, I'd love to do this part or that part, you know, we'd be happy to hear it and possibly do it. My gut reaction is that the single most dramatic four months or six months might be starting with Woodrow Wilson going to Paris right after the war in December of 1918. And what I, and it's the opening of my book, actually. And as you will see, what I try to establish, especially for modern readers, is that this was not just a great man making a trip abroad. This was the savior of the world. There had never been a march of triumph. There had never been a greeting. There had never been so much adulation heaped on a single human being as what befell Woodrow Wilson when he landed in Paris. It was just extraordinary. Two million people turned out in the city with a population of only 1 million people. That's just for openers. uh, And just the reaction everywhere, in fact, not surpassed until Charles Lindbergh flew the Atlantic. So I thought that's what we would call a splashy opening. (laughs) Um, But from there, I thought to see the negotiations that went on in Paris, and then the real drama, the real tragedy of Wilson's life, which was coming back with this treaty which they have been negotiating for six months, which incorporate much of Wilson's 14 points, the 14th of which was the most quixotic, a League of Nations. And Wilson, being a constitutional scholar, and as all of you know, the president can draft treaties. He can negotiate them, but he can't ratify them. Only the US Senate can do that. And he came back to an extremely hostile, increasingly Republican Senate who was simply against, anything Wilson brought back. If you can imagine, a Republican Congress saying to a Democratic <laughs> president, we don't care what you've got. We're against it. And that's what Woodrow Wilson found, actually. And then he embarked on what I consider the most dramatic moment of his life. And maybe it's, it's one of the greatest dramas in American history, which is Woodrow Wilson realizing the Senate wasn't going to buy the act decides to take it to the people. And Wilson goes on a 29-city tour around the country in very poor health, sometimes giving five speeches a day in a very hot summer, traveling in unair conditioned we call them train cars, but they were ovens. And he travels around as his health just diminishes with each day, with each speech. And then finally he collapses. They rush him home, and three days later he has a stroke, which they don't tell the country about.
1: Well, and and I didn't realize there was no radio, so he couldn't talk to the people unless he went around the country.
0: That's it. And for these huge crowds, for the most part, there was no microphone. For the most part, that's exactly right. And I even make an allusion in the book, you know, because radio, if it had happened one or two years later, Radio had really hooked up most of the country by then. And, and imagine what it would have been like if Woodrow Wilson could have just sat by the fireside and had a chat. Um, but he couldn't. He had to go, as you suggest, out there and not just talk into a mic, but talk to, in some cases, 20,000 people would show up at a pop to hear him give these speeches. Mm-hmm.
1: Now his handling of the United States intervention in World War I was masterful in that he entered the war only as a last resort after he would exhausted all of his other options. He, he got the country up to speed militarily in record time. He pressed the Allied cause with full force and he obtained a quick German surrender once the Americans intervened. So my question is how did a historian and an academic like Woodrow Wilson figure out how to direct successful international war tactics as commander-in-chief. How did he
0: pull that off with with essentially no prior military background? Well, um, we've had dummies do that, too. (laughs) So, I mean, I I wouldn't hold his being smart against him. So, that being said... Um, Woodrow Wilson was a great historian. He was, he was America's, one of America's leading historians at that point, in fact. He's, uh, again, not only with the, the only one with a PhD, he's the only real academician we had who went on to the, to the White House. Uh, he had written biography of Washington. He had written a five-volume history of the United States. So he knew whereof he spoke. And he clearly had a lot of natural political instincts. Um, He was not a military historian per se, but he would say that he served as commander-in-chief using his morality more than anything else, I think. And I think this might have been, I mean, he did consider himself a Christian soldier, and I think a lot of that really kicked in for him. Uh, And he made a couple of really wise, two big wise decisions, actually, in leading this country into war. And the first was, he was going to let the military men fight the war. Mm-hmm. And he hired General Pershing to, to run the war, basically. And he never second-guessed Pershing. Mm-hmm. He basically said, you know more about this than I do. Now do it, but be sure you win it. <laughs> um, um, and and he did. The second thing, and this this was a really smart Wilsonian idea. He said, in sending our, army over there, two million soldiers uh, that we sent over. He made it very clear from the start that we were not an allied country. We were sending what was called the American Expeditionary Force, and we were not sending these two million men over to replace all the empty uniforms of French and British soldiers who had been killed. We were going to fight separately, but alongside the French and the British. And it was a very smart thing, because after four years of just exhaustion on the parts of the European countries, along came these freshly trained, freshly uniformed 18-year-old American boys, and they just mopped up Europe with them. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, when the war was over, you talked about the six-month negotiation in in Paris. and, And when it was over, he received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1920 because his perspective was, his goal was, he <laughs> wanted World War I to be the war that ended all wars. And my question is, does that reflect a glaring naivety about the nature of man to think huh. that we're ever mm-hmm. gonna be at the, to have a war that ends all future wars? When I was
0: 15, I had four pictures on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> there are some people known as tragic idealists. Um, well, I don't know. I, I, I'd hate to agree with what you just said. Um, I, I, I'm but not But you can. Sure. <laughs> I can, but I'm, well, just on principle, I don't want to. We'll but, but the naivete, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I would call it more faith in mankind rather than naivete. Um, and I think that's what Wilson felt. And Wilson really did feel this League of Nations wasn't a pipe dream, that it was highly practical. He, he really drafted a very practical constitution for this organization. He had a very clear understanding of how it could and should work. And he often said, if we had had this League of Nations in place in the summer of 1914, when not even the leader of a country, but a prince was assassinated, and all the countries of Europe, if they had just come to a table and talked it through, instead of posturing and saber rattling, we probably could have avoided World War One. So that was his firm belief. And nothing could shake that. Mm-hmm. So he, he did believe in mankind at the end of the day. Crazy though that might be. Yeah. Uh,
1: You've referenced after the paralyzing stroke, after the, the nationwide tour this conspiracy of misinformation orchestrated by his wife, Edith, his doctor, Carrie Grayson, and his secretary, Joe Tumulty. Here we are again, uh, the prospect of Hillary Clinton seeking to be elected our first woman president in 2016, but in fact, during the last 17 months of the Wilson presidency, is it safe to say that in fact, Edith Wilson acted as our first
0: woman president. Yes. Um, I think it is safe to say that. um, It was Mrs. Wilson and a handful of doctors who basically conspired to keep the stroke, the president's stroke, from the world. Now, I hasten to add a few things. Uh, Wilson did not lose his powers of speech or thought. He could still reason. Uh, but he was paralyzed completely on his left side. He developed, as we realize now, a company strokes very often, great emotional swings, real major mood swings, and often very strange lapses in judgment. So during this period, um, the doctors came to Mrs. Wilson and said, Mrs. Wilson, your husband can endure no stress. Any stress can be fatal. And she said, but that's what being president is, is stress. That's all you do all day is deal with stress. And the doc, one of the doctors said, well, I know you've, you're very close, as they were. They were the closest presidential couple we've ever had, and I'm not forgetting the Reagans here. Uh, but Mrs. Wilson often accompanied the president when he'd visit cabinet members. Uh, She was in in on every memorandum and everything. It's as though he innately knew to train her. But the doctor said, you seem to know everything that's going on. Why not let everything come to you? And you decide what the president will even consider. Now, she would say that she was only a steward. She never made a decision that her husband didn't really make. That being said, for 17 months, Nobody saw the President of the United States unless they passed first through the second Mrs. Wilson. No document, nothing requiring a signature, no memorandum, no policy um, note went to the President of the United States without Mrs. Wilson first vetting it and then deciding if he should even see it. And if he was going to see it, she would then tell you what the arguments were rather suggesting what the answer should be. So one could say the wheels of the executive branch, day to day, were rolling because Mrs. Wilson was out there pushing me. So yes, to a degree. It depends on how you define what the president of the United States is. But she was definitely the person in charge of the White House. There's no question. Well,
1: with this awareness that he had suffered something that was keeping him out of the limelight. Obviously, one of the main sources of information (coughs) to the Cabinet, the Congress, the public, was his doctor, Dr. Grayson, who was in serious ethical limbo because, on the one hand, his patient, his patient's wife, didn't want the public to know what was going on. But on the other hand, he's an American citizen, (coughs) and doesn't he have a duty to the American public to have an awareness of what condition the president's in? So... From your perspective, with these conflicting duties, if
0: you're Dr. Grayson, which is more important, the duty to the patient or the duty to the public? Well, in Dr. Grayson's case, that was an easy uh, choice. It was to his patient And, and to, well, we now have a 25th Amendment to the Constitution which very specifically defines presidential disability. And there's even a clause in there that says if a certain number of cabinet members uh, decide that the president is incapacitated, he will be replaced by the vice president. Now, this raises a whole other question, which is, why didn't they just call on the vice president? Um, (laughs) uh, The problem here was the vice president, (laughs) 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 Uh, who in this case was a rather uh, charming, lovable buffoon, Uh, I hope I have no relatives here, of Thomas R. Marshall of Indiana, um, who became uh, Vice President of the United States and loved being Vice President. He really did, and in fact, I was told, I never saw it, but I was told by somebody who knew him that he had a business card that said, Thomas R. Marshall, Vice President of the United States and Toastmaster. And he loved nothing more than making toasts and doing that. And the rumor yet again is, and I got this from Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, Alice Longworth, so I know it's probably not true. Uh, (laughs) but, But she's claimed that in Washington, the word was that when they finally realized they had to at least break it to the vice president, that they said, Vice President Marshall, the president has suffered a stroke, that Marshall fainted. (laughs) <laughs> so this was not a man, you see, who really wanted to serve as as President of the United States. Now, this raises to me perhaps the most important unraised question in the book and the life, which is to say, who was Mrs. Wilson and a doctor to decide that? Because who knows about Thomas R. Marshall? You know, everything they said about Marshall, people said about Harry Truman in 1945. Who is to say Thomas R. Marshall suddenly couldn't have become a Harry Truman once the light was on him? Who knows? And that's a decision Mrs. Wilson refused even to consider. Hmm. Now before we have a few questions
1: from the audience, I have one last question. And when you buy the book, and I hope everybody buys the book, you close it with an absolutely dazzling paragraph to the effect that in 2013, you believe that the shadow of Woodrow Wilson in Washington DC is
0: lengthening. How so? I do believe that. And and I wrote that paragraph a while ago. And now, as I read the newspaper every day, I would now underscore that it's lengthening for this reason. Well, where to begin? Certainly, our foreign policy to this day entirely goes back to one sentence in one speech Woodrow Wilson gave in April of 1917 when he called a joint session of Congress and asked for a declaration of war against Germany. And in the middle of that speech, he said, famously now, the world must be made safe for democracy. Now that, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, it is with us today. And that When when President Obama a few weeks ago was talking about Syria and was raising the questions, is America the policeman of the world? But on the other hand, can we sit and watch a dictator gas and kill a 1,000 of his people, children included? Can the United States look the other way? Is there not some moral component to foreign policy for this country? Again, whatever your answer is, Wilson was the one who raised those questions. And therefore, every incursion we have had, whether it was Haiti and Mexico and Wilson's day, and, and later in uh, Haiti and Roosevelt's day, or, or whether it's Vietnam or Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, all that goes directly back to April second, 1917, Woodrow Wilson. Our economic policy to this day, I think, really Really is built largely, certainly, on the foundation of the Federal Reserve System, which was something Woodrow Wilson presented in his first year in office, he said this was an essential to um, American the American economy. Our labor laws, the eight hour workday, workmen's compensation. Uh, almost anywhere you look, Wilson put the first Jew on a Supreme on the Supreme Court. This was really the first shattering of glass ceilings in this country. So I say now more than ever, yes, the Wilson shadow is still lengthening. Like
1: mm-hmm.
0: Questions? Open yes, up. John Talmadge. Uh,
1: John, stand up, please. Going back to your, uh, your point that the world today is a reflection of, of Woodrow Wilson's uh, life and, and work, during his presidency, we had the Volstead Act, the Harrison Act, and uh, he was, and I may have my history wrong here, part of an American Labor Federation Committee on Social Insurance, uh, advocating changes in the way healthcare was created, (laughs) delivered, handled. Did you come across interesting findings in that regard as you (coughs) looked at his life Uh, Not so
0: very little about health policy per se, except the version of health um, at the turn of the century and into his first term, which really had to do with um, food and drug standards. That certainly concerned him. Um, If, if in fact, you're suggesting health insurance uh, and the government sort of looking out for the health of American citizens in that regard. No, I did not. Um, But health was certainly on his agenda. He did talk about uh, water and air. Um, He he was actually a conservationist. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, of course, is considered the great conservationist. Um, Woodrow Wilson actually protected far more uh, land than, than Teddy Roosevelt ever did, although, TR certainly planted that seed, um, which Wilson then watered. Uh, But no, I can't give you a direct answer about health care, per se. Question?
1: Robert, you had had a question. Could you wait for the microphone?
0: (laughs) If not, we know you can carry it without it. (laughs) Scott, I want to read you the last paragraph from Kevin Baker's review in the New York Times of your book about two weeks ago, and maybe you could comment on it. Okay. It's not long. Don't worry. Okay. Yes, we should have joined Wilson's League, but how much would a deeply isolationist and distracted America have wanted to intervene in Europe in the 30s? (coughs) How much would England and France have allowed us to do? In short, did Woodrow Wilson's martyrdom really matter so much in the end, or is it more a story we like to tell ourselves? Well, uh, the first thing I would say is about me, which is I don't really do speculative history. I'm not a tea leaf historian uh, who reads what's at the bottom of the cup. That being said, because you're here for lunch, I met you. I like you. I'll give you an answer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a slightly bogus question to talk about Wilson in the 30s, because we didn't get what Wilson wanted in the 20s. And that is to say, if if the presumption is Wilson would have lived to see his league put into place, um, the world in the 20s would have been quite different. We would not have had the Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover administrations, which were devoted to one thing, and that was undoing everything Wilson had done. Back to normalcy, said Harding. Uh, basically, let's go back to isolationism, which we did for the next 10 years. Um, I think um, had Wilson gone on, and even in his, in his stroke-addled state, uh, he was still contemplating a third term, actually, which really shows you how out of it he was on some levels. Um, but uh, the world, uh, presumably, let's say a Democrat had replaced him, uh, would have been, and, and in fact, the Democrats who would have replaced him in 1920, who did run on the Democratic ticket, uh, were Cox of Ohio, the governor of Ohio, and a young politico named Franklin D. Roosevelt, um, who had served Wilson as the undersecretary of the Navy, uh, both of whom made it very clear, because this, this was in fact the referendum of the election of 1920, do we support the League or not? And Cox and Roosevelt were very much about, we have now entered the world. We're in the 20th century world now. So to ask that question about what we would have done in the 30s when the entire 20s would have been quite different, I believe. I mean, I think we would have rolled into something far more international than we were. And as a result of that, yes, I think um, the nation and the world would have been ready for all that. And more to the point a League of Nations would have been in place. And let's, let's believe for a second that it could have worked, that, in fact, all things, all wars begin as minor discrepancies. They don't become a war overnight. And that being the case, could not those things, fascism, whatever, been arrested earlier on? So um, it's, it's tough for me to answer otherwise. But that's the best I can give you, I think. We have time for one more question. you mentioned the uh, movie that yes. you're about to get.
1: I would just simply ask you that there was a movie made called Wilson back in the 40s.
0: 1944.
1: And it was only about four hours long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wondered how accurate was that movie?
0: Well, that movie, yes, it was a movie called Wilson, made in 1944. It was produced by Daryl Zanuck who went on to produce oh my gosh, Daryl Zanuck did, uh, you know, did did All About Eve. He did The Grapes of Wrath. He's he's one of the greatest producers we've ever had. He went to his grave saying the one movie he wanted to be remembered for was Wilson, in fact, which was made, as I said, in 44, which means it was in the middle of World War II or toward the end of World War II. And it was, in fact, something of a propaganda film. It was really meant to keep Americans goosed and feel real good and wave flags and all that and, and to remember the vision of the internationalism of uh, Woodrow Wilson. And remember, this is why we're fighting now to bring bring peace and freedom uh, to the world just the way Woodrow Wilson suggested back in 1917. The movie, strangely, was fairly accurate, in fact. Um, And the poor actor uh, who played it, you see, this won't happen to Leonardo. Um, But the actor who played it was a little known actor um, who named Alexander Knox. He was so good in it, he almost never worked again. Uh, because every time he came on the screen, people said, oh, there's Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> you know, so he was, you know, he was hard to cast after that. But it, it's, um, and it's, it's, it's closer to three hours than four, to be fair. Um, and it's a lot of Wilson. I recommend it for Wilson lovers only. Um, <laughs> But it's uh, but I should tell you it was nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture and it won Best Screenplay and a number of other films, a uh, n- number of other awards. So it um, and it was a total fizzle at the box office. It cost more than any movie had made uh, at that point, uh, any Hollywood movie. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank we you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks thank you, time. Time. thank you. Man. It was really nice. Thank you,
1: For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.